Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Tennessee Representative Caleb Hemmer. He just finished his first session in the legislature, one that garnered international attention for profoundly undemocratic actions. We talked about his efforts to fight for democracy and sensible laws to reduce gun violence. He also shared his path to public service and how he won a 50-50 district. We also spent a lot of time talking about his hometown in Nashville and the challenges and opportunities of managing fast growth in a city where everybody wants to be. Enjoy. Tennessee Representative Caleb Hemmer, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Really excited about this. Let's start with the fact that you are a representative out of Nashville, representing many of the country music's biggest and brightest stars. Can you talk a little bit about what that responsibility and experience is like? Oh, that's great. Yes. Well, it's been a fortunate pleasure here. We have a number of creatives in the country music industry, as well as rock and film and other creative classes and make such a unique melting pot for our city and the culture and the DNA that's intertwined within that. And it's uh, it's always very neat to run into country music stars and whatnot when I'm uh, in the neighborhood or at the grocery store. I mean, it's just such a unique facet to being in Nashville and being part of the community here. Can you talk about, while Nashville is always on our radar from a music perspective, this year, Tennessee has been on our national radar on issues around democracy. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like to serve in the Tennessee legislature during this tumultuous time? Oh, thank you. Yes, we've been known for the not good things about government and about democracy this year, unfortunately, with the attempt of our GOP supermajority to expel three lawmakers for minor infraction. I likened it to giving them the death penalty for a speeding ticket. And the world saw what became of that, and it uh, created such a catastrophe and really blew up in the Republicans' face. Again, not for good things. You know, we think of democracy and having a voice and speaking our minds and and having debates and all the the great things about our our society and we saw what was could be you know the worst and the ugly parts of it too just this past week uh, Atlantic wrote a very large essay the title of it was is Tennessee a democracy I mean that's not what we are and not what we want to be known for very interesting as a freshman lawmaker to have a, a seat at the floor and a first row seat we're quite literally, as I sit behind two of the uh, expelled lawmakers, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, during the proceedings in the what I called the kangaroo court. But it really was history being made. We had uh, over 9,000 people coming to the Capitol, peacefully protesting and really involved in a democracy. And I think if anything, we showed the world and other colleagues that in elected offices, this is why we fight. This is everything. 
And we are so appreciative of all the things in society that we can bring to bear. I'd like to get your perspective on how we got to this place. I mean, in, in my lifetime, you had Al Gore, a vice president, presidential candidate coming out of your state, and it was a purple state. And now we've gotten to a point where the rules and restrictives and national discussion around your state is a little bit about how extreme some of the politics have gotten. Can you chart for us a little bit about how we got there and what the current state of Tennessee democracy and politics is like? Yeah. I mean, to be the state of, you know, Al Gore and Howard Baker and, and what used to be known as kind of the deal making, uh, you know, gentilism of a lot of middle of the road Republicans has gone awry. And now we're known as the heart of extremism, where you see conservative media like, you know, Daily Wire, et cetera, and the conservative media personalities have now flocked to Tennessee and the Nashville area due to these, you know, extremist policies. And it's really unfortunate because it's not the middle of the road. It's not the way to compromise and what we think of in democracy and how our constituents want us to act. I liken it to you see everybody running on education and crime and healthcare. And then when we come up here, the first bills that we're doing is targeting the disadvantaged, targeting LGBTQ and in creating these, you know, illegal and quite discriminatory laws that we're now known for and actions that we're known for. And it's just quite frankly, pathetic and not what we need to be doing. It's not serious. It's not doing the people's business. It's not improving our communities. You know, you have a very successful career in business before running and even now, I imagine you could lead a pretty good life. What made you decide to run and get engaged in what is, as you described, you know, a difficult political environment? I fortunately had a, before I got into business career, I, I started out in politics, had family involved in the legislature and working the legislature. And I, and I actually was an intern 20 years ago. And so it's life has really become full circle. And so I had a, like I said, worked in political campaigns. I was fortunate enough to work for Governor Phil Bredesen as his executive assistant and had many other great mentors that really taught me how to run government, how to be responsible and respectful and responsive to constituents. And after got out of government for a little bit and involved in private business and was uh, fortunate to be very successful. And then I had a, a scare with cancer and I had a Hodgkin's lymphoma out of nowhere as a, as a young, my early thirties. And it really took a step back and took a few years off of, uh, you know, what my normal career path would have been. And luckily I was able to make it to the other side and get better. And thankfully I've been remission about a decade now. As part of that, when I recovered, I, I wanted to get back involved into political life and public service. And so I started out just uh, joining a board here in Nashville, our local fair board, and was, was able to find some success revitalizing that. It's now the home of Nashville SC and the uh, soccer stadium, and we have a park and some new buildings and a new expo center. And it's it really uh, helped kind of invigorate me and my political passions. And then when redistricting happened last year, it created a new open seat in the Nashville area. And it's actually the most competitive seat in, in Tennessee, drawn as a 50-50 seat. So I started having a lot of people calling me and trying to get me to run. And so I took that to, to heart because I knew what a privilege it is to serve the community and really felt like this was the best way that I could give back and, and help others and had really drawn to that. And I was fortunate enough to, to get elected. 
how did that campaign go? I mean, a 50-50 seat in a red state is tough. What was the key to your success? I had worked really, really hard. Early on, I had a former boss of mine tell me that uh, it was kind of my, my internal motto was the harder you work, the luckier you'll get. And I took that to heart and thought about that every day. And I just really did just work my tail off. I've spent a lot of time getting out there in the community, getting support, uh, leveraging networks, fundraising, getting you know endorsements, meeting with people, doing a lot of listening learned a lot and then just leveraged, you know, luckily it was area where I'd grown up in. And so just leveraged the relationships I had and uh, was fortunate. I was nice to a lot of people and a lot of people were nice to me and just worked my tail off, knocked on thousands of doors, made thousands of phone calls and really did start working as soon as they had the lines drawn. I really got to work and was able to clear out primary due to my, my early strength in relationships and had two Republicans that, that ran and uh, fortunate that the uh, more extreme out of touch one of the two ran, even though they were both pretty flawed candidates and just outworked them. It was an interesting campaign strategy that I, I ran on being normal <laughs> and it really did resonate when uh, in a time when you had people that were, you know, my, my opponent was believer of January 6th, anti-COVID denier, was very, very out of touch, you know, with the middle of the road, you know, business-minded suburban district, highly educated, fluent area, and just, you know, showed her true colors. And I was able to just go out there and show that I was a serious, normal person that was willing to work and willing to sacrifice my time give back to the community. And that really resonated and was fortunate to win by a very comfortable margin, about 1,400 votes. It ended up being about a double the margin that President Biden got in the same district when he ran against 2020. So I was really happy with the outcome. I love that running on being normal. It's it's brilliant because it's clearly what people are hungering for. And if you can articulate it that simply, you can see it resonates. Yeah. Someone told me a, a good advice too. They said, you know, people want to know that you're hardworking, that you're smart, but you don't act like you're smarter than them. <laughs> and I really just, like, again, kind of just being normal, you know, just did a lot of listening, a lot of just being present. You know, I tried to make an everywhere strategy. I made a, a big strategy to not only have a heavy field game, I'm a former field coordinator, field advanced guy. So I kind of have that in my DNA from my political background. But, you know, I, I worked really hard. I, the first thing I did was just look at all the major arteries in my district and made sure I found out who the supporters were on those roads and peppered it with large yard signs. And then every very big intersection, I'd go knock on their doors and make sure I put a big yard sign. So just everywhere you look, I had very visible community support and as well as was, you know, out in the community, you know, backing that up and having people that supported me speak their mind and, and reach out to their friends and family and their networks as well. I feel like having been involved in politics for all these years, people think that there's this grand strategy that you have to go through to run for office when actually it's just really it's just doing the basics. It's just knocking down the things that you have to do every day of knocking on doors and raising money and putting up signs. And in most cases, in most elections, that's what makes the difference. Yeah, just hustle, most of it. And and I was actually taken back at that too. I mean, luckily I had a, a policy background and and was, you know, I'm very well read. I, I read probably 
four or five publications a day as well as, you know, social media, et cetera. But that was probably one of the things I was taken back. I was prepared to have these big policy debates and people to, you know, be very interested in my positions. And it wasn't like that mostly. And it's also because, you know, I've got about 70,000 constituents and you got to, you know, be everywhere at all times. So I didn't have a, a lot of opportunity to get in those debates and whatnot. But I'll say this, it was, it was more of a popularity contest than it was a political policy debate by and large, like you see with a you know, mayor's race or governor's race or you know presidential, et cetera. And so again, just having people know you, like you, have respect and, and just be available to them if they have a, a need, then that's very much majority of the battle. Do you think the Democratic Party in Tennessee learned lessons from your race that they could apply to other competitive districts around the state? Yes, yes. And we're hoping to to do that. I'm involved with our caucus efforts and recruiting that right now. And so, again, having people that are a good fit for your district. I mean, I'm I'm pretty well matched demographically to my district, had, you know, exceptional resume for public office, had a lot of relationships, uh, had ability to fundraise. And so I, I checked a lot of the traditional boxes, but each district's different. You know, we we really do look at the numbers and, you know, particularly in Tennessee, this cycle with us having an unfortunate national tragedy in the Covenant School shooting that happened this spring, which was the precursor to the expulsions. We, it's really taking a lot of the traditional political battle lines off the table. We've, we've had a community that's just, again, had this horrible tragedy with these lives lost and another senseless act of violence and school shooting. And people are still at a fever pitch and wanting change and wanting common sense gun laws and wanting their kids to be safe. And it's really taking them back by seeing it how, you know, complacent and how obtuse that our legislative Republicans have been historically in not addressing these issues and quite frankly, just dismissing of them and, and constituents. And so which led to the, the powder keg that ended up being the expulsion. And so it's I say that in that, you know, we're going to have some strange politics this year. But there's, you know, I think it'll be, there's a large, you know, traditional DR battleground. But you've got a lot of traditionally Republican evangelical voters who are very upset still and want their kids to be safe and willing to vote for that over their party. Wow. Before we continue the conversation, I want to let you in on a tool that's been transforming the way political comms and digital teams of all sizes work. The tool is Hashtag Viral, the newsletter, brought to you by our friends at Girl in the Gov. Hashtag Viral brings social media content ideas, platform explainers, and best practices through a political application lens to inboxes every Tuesday. This skip the meeting, make it an email method of social media consulting has saved teams time and money all the while providing easy-to-apply content concepts across all major platforms. Covering the works from Instagram and TikTok to YouTube and Twitter, Hashtag Viral shares pertinent updates on platform features and best practices. Best yet, it's a resource designed by two political influencers who know the intersection of politics and social media like the back of their hands. To subscribe, visit www.girlinthegov.com backslash newsletter. Now, back to our episode. And I want to talk about sensible gun reform in a second, but I think, you know, you have the opportunity to make a case. I imagine there are folks out there listening who are, you know, live in blue dots and red states and they look at the supermajorities and they're like, why go through all the trouble 
knocking on the doors, putting up signs, everything else to then, you know, have my vote marginalized. What's the case that you make for folks to get engaged in those situations and serve? I've worked in a legislature when it was a Democratic majority, and now I'm in a Democratic super minority, and I can I can attest to both sides. It's much different. You know, you have to be much more willing to compromise. I have to reach across the aisle. I mean, I can do math, and if I want to pass a bill, I need to get some Republican support. And so I think it's all about just, you know, again, going back to relationships, treating people with respect, finding commonality, common ground. So the campaign is one thing. And now I'm in a legislative role and I got to get my legislative hat on and I got to work with these people. I was telling some of this earlier today. It's only in a, you know, kind of a legislative political arena that you can act the way you do. If by and large, you know, people acted the way folks do at the legislature or at all, you know, political offices like they do at their work, they would get fired. And so going across, like I said, developing relationships, developing friendships, finding areas of of common agreement. That's what will help me get bills passed. Yes, there are times to fight and there's time to compromise. And I have to, you know, find those fault lines, so to speak. But at the end of the day, I get a lot done. And, you know, even at all that chaos, I was very productive getting getting bills and amendments and stuff going behind the scenes, you know, while everybody else was distracted. And, you know, some of the most beneficial things I do is help constituents. You know, I'm helping a lady right now with a children's services issue with some of her foster children, you know, helping people get back on their Medicaid benefits. I mean, so I've had all these great heartwarming things that you can do, you know, passing legislation that'll quite frankly change people's lives. You know, I say at the end of the day, what I loved about public service, what I missed when I got out of it is it's really the way to help people at scale. If you like helping people, you can find a way to do it, do this role, even in a super minority and you can influence things, you know, right now. I mean, there's no place I'd rather be. We're, you know, a couple of weeks out from having a special session on uh, public safety and gun reform. And, you know, I'm at the middle of that. And, you know, I have a two small kids and have a lot of community members that have been affected by that. And I just I feel a heavy burden to get something done. And I feel, you know, the Lord has placed me in this spot to help get something done. And I don't take that lightly. And it is a heavy burden to bear and looking forward to, you know, hopefully getting good things done for the, our community. Yeah. What does getting something done look like either in this session or if you pick up some legislative victories in a future legislative session around gun safety? Yeah, we're currently working on that. I've uh, been a few meetings about that today, this week. We're supposed to be having a special session here in three weeks to do that. And I think it'll be incremental reform. I mean, we're looking at various things from a mental health, behavioral health, providing more coverage. I call it infrastructure for that. There's a lot of loopholes in our court systems that we found out, technology. So we're working on some items around that. And then specific gun reform. We've been centered around a lot of discussion around extreme risk protection orders. There's even talk of assault weapons bans, war, more, you know, behavioral health resources in, in regards to legal items in this in that area. And then also, lastly, uh, secure storage. And I've been leading the forefront of the efforts to combat, you know, quite frankly, criminals getting guns easily. Tennessee is number one in the country, according to the latest FBI stats per capita of guns being stolen in cars. And this happened when our Republican legislature took over 
they loosened a lot of gun laws and they passed one called guns and trunks and they didn't put any punishment for you leaving your gun in your car. And so people, more and more people started leaving guns in the cars and particularly leaving them unlocked and then going out to downtown and then leaving the guns in their cars. And, and so we've had a plethora of firearms being stolen. Memphis, Shelby County is number one in the country. Chattanooga, Hamilton County is number two in the country. My, my county, uh, Davidson County is in the top 15. And so I've been focused on this. It was in a front page New York Times story about our efforts to get this fixed this year. Unfortunately, it was on the same day as our covenant shooting. You know, it, it also was, it was interesting that NRA called me feckless in this same uh, interview the same day that the shooting happened. And, and then they, they wouldn't want to do anything to help out in this regard. So I found that pretty interesting as well. But we're not deterred. We know that what the problems are. We know we have proposals for solutions and we know how to fix things to make it better. And that's what we're focused on doing is our, our Democrat caucus. Well, I hope your legislative colleagues do step up and pass some sensible measures that just make it safer for all of us, but especially, especially for kids. We were all heartbroken by the Covenant shooting like we have been for all the other school shootings that this country faces. It's just it's just crushing. I want to get your perspective because you've been a successful executive in both healthcare and solar. And I'm curious, what do you see as the big opportunities, especially in red states, for those two industries to provide better services and create opportunities for folks in those economic sectors? Right. Yeah. First, with, the, with solar and other green energy technologies, I mean, these are jobs. There's jobs in the manufacturing, construction jobs, and in the install and, and maintenance and benefits for community landowners. And that's what that's about. Luckily, we've had Tennessee starting out under the leadership of Governor Bredesen was really focused on creating some stakeholders in this industry. We were able to recruit some industry kind of at the early going on of this, you know, about 15 years ago or so now. And it's since, you know, exploded. You know, luckily economics has played a role in that and the cost of, of these solar energy is, is and wind, et cetera, has gone down. And see, I was reading a CNBC article today about a large solar company was putting, announced they're putting their fifth Domestic manufacturing. We've seen all these stories since President Biden's passed, you know, the Investment Inflation Reduction Act, how so much of these green energy companies are coming back to the United States. And so the smart states and the smart policymakers are putting in place the infrastructure to capture these companies. They're training workers for these roles and they're putting stakeholders down so they can be the place these investments continue to do and create jobs and communities are better off. Healthcare, Tennessee and Nashville in general is a healthcare capital of the country. And we're very proud of that. We have so much healthcare investment and we are very fortunate in that regards. And now we're seeing just kind of a snowball effect. You know, we have the large companies and then people go off and start up their own things and they snowball into bigger companies. So it's one of our largest industries. And I was fortunate enough to get involved in that as just being here and wanting to learn more about healthcare. So I've been doing various ventures in the healthcare industry for the, in, in startups and et cetera for the last decade or so. And uh, proud that we have that mantle. We want to continue to grow and invest and be a leader for healthcare for the country. I want to wrap up with some positive news, which is I, you've been passionate about economic development in Nashville and supporting the soccer team and the private sector investments that you've been talking about. 
you know, half the people I talk to in California are thinking about moving to Nashville. Can you talk about what's special that's going on there that's causing the city to get, you know, national attention and people really wanting to pick up and move their businesses and lives to your city? Yeah, Nashville and uh, Middle Tennessee in general has just been on fire for, for over a decade. You know, New York Times called it the id city. So almost a decade ago, we haven't stopped since. COVID's only provided rocket fuel since then. We've got a very good economic diversified base of various industries, like I mentioned, healthcare, tourism, you know, cultural music, a lot of universities, manufacturing, and We've attracted a lot of interest. We also have no income tax, which is helpful as well. And this general low cost of living with a high quality of life, not a lot of traffic, et cetera. And so, you know, it's attracted a lot of people, luckily. And we're, you know, I saw a report recently, we're, we're getting about 100 people a day. I know for a while we were getting the most college educated millennials moving to Nashville of any major metro per capita in the country. For a while, we've had more cranes in a downtown area than any other city in the United States and Canada and Mexico. So it's been just absolutely insane amount of growth. And so we're trying to handle that as best we can, like a lot of high growth areas. And I've lived in Nashville all my life. So I've seen it when it's not been so hot. So I've been, I'm very appreciative of the position we're in, but we're also trying to manage that smartly with our schools and our infrastructure strategic planning, et cetera. And so, you know, we want to take a lot of lessons learned from, you know, this past couple of weeks, I've visited both San Francisco and Boston, and it's a tale of two cities right now. And and I think I don't take that lightly as a leader and elected official in our city and our state, that you can go the wrong way with some policies, you can go the right way and have, like I said, smart growth and, and all the things you want to be known for. So we are grateful for that position and want people to come and grow and invest in Nashville and Tennessee and looking forward to being an open, hospitable community for years to come. Well, we appreciate you telling that story today. And we love having you in the New Deal Network. And I think all of us across the country are wishing you the best of luck in this special session to address gun violence. And thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it, Ryan. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.